Well, hello everyone. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. And it's great to have you with us here again. Uh, thanks so much for all the interchange, the emails. We've got quite a few emails, let me just say, about that edition we put out a couple of episodes ago on the Anglican Choir. And we're going to come back to some of that feedback probably next week, I suspect, because this week's a little different on Two Ways News. We have a special guest. Nathan Anderson is joining us, and he's here to talk about his grandfather, Brian Booth. Now, we'll talk a little bit in a moment about who Brian Booth is and why you should know about him, but Philip, why should we know about someone like Brian Booth, who's a part of our Australian history, but someone that many of our listeners will probably not have heard of? Well, that's exactly why we should be knowing about him. Um... Brian was a great Christian man, and if we don't tell our stories, then we lose our history. History is such an important thing. History is a matter of understanding yourself, where I've come from. How did I get to where I've come from? Why do I think the way I think? It's all part of history. Of course, as Christians, it's it's a natural thing to think in history because our God is the creator who has worked through the history of humanity to bring about his purposes and the salvation of mankind. Christians are the creators of history in that sense. So knowing our history is really important, but in our society, history is now being downplayed as being less and less significant as our society moves away from Christianity. But also Christian history is almost completely obliterated. Sir Marcus Lone was always very strong in telling us about our history. Mark these men and from Hewan from the Stone and his stories of the Oxford and Cambridge Evangelical Movement. And Marcus did a great work for us in giving us reminders of our history. Of recent times, Stuart Piggin has written some very large books on Australian Christian history. But apart from that, sadly, our knowledge of our Christian forebears is slipping very quickly. And it's important that we do remember the men and women who have made such a contribution to the way in which we live. And Nathan, who's with us here, is agreeing with me on every point, because apart from everything else, he's a history teacher. So he's in full agreement. (laughs) (laughs) This is a good part so far, isn't it? Absolutely. But there's the other side of it too, is the the sheer importance of your grandfather, who uh, has died only recently. Yes, in May. In May, and he was of uh, he didn't make ninety, did he? No, didn't get to the nervous nineties. Didn't get to uh, the nervous nineties, but was a very important man in the Christian circles of of Sydney and Australia. Important for other reasons than just his Christianity, but his Christianity shaped everything he did, really, didn't it? Oh, indeed. So what is he most famous for? Uh, Well, he played 29 tests for Australia in the 1960s, made his debut in 1961 at Old Trafford in England, very famous test match. Before that, he'd actually represented Australia in hockey at the 1956 Olympics in Melbourne. It was the first time Australia actually had a, a hockey team at the Olympics. Yeah. And represented his state, of course, before Nation. Played a lot of Sheffield Shield cricket. Now, yeah. now we don't want to turn people off no. listening to us because they don't like cricket. <laughs> um, they're the people who especially need to hear. Of course. Uh, of course. But we cricket lovers and cricket tragics like Tony is, we love history and we love romance and, and statistics, don't we? Of course. So his batting average in these tests... I haven't got it down to the decimal place, but it's about 42. Yeah. Uh, I looked him up the other day and 
He was the 40th highest batting average for an Australian batsman. So In history? In history, mm. which I don't know how many people have played cricket for Australia. Tony knows that off the top of his head. Uh, <laughs> it's over 400. It's over 400, yeah. yes. To be in the top 40, I mean, to be in a test team mm. is a great privilege, isn't it? But he was more than in his test team. He actually captained. Yes, captained in two tests, one draw and, and one loss. And his final test was actually after he'd captained for the second time. <laughs> uh, so he missed out. Sad. They used to have a, if you'd played 30 matches, there, there was a fund for cricketers that helped him a bit in retirement. So he missed out by one match on getting a bit of financial assistance, <laughs> which was quite important back then. Well, it was important back then, wasn't it? Because they weren't professional cricketers. No, no, not many of them. How can you play test cricket as an amateur? What? How did they do that? Well, you had to take leave from your job. Uh, most of them would work during the week. If they had a, a Sheffield Shield game, they'd take a few days off, go into the cricket ground or travel by train interstate. And for the cricket, particularly my grandfather going overseas to England, it was about seven and a half months to travel there and back with a few games in between, six weeks on the boat roughly. So all that time taken off work and they effectively got paid enough to sort of get by each day but not much profit really yeah. I mean, so it was just it was just they were looked after yeah so the, the accommodation the food um maybe a, a tiny bit of spending money but um, was he married at this time he was he my mother was actually born on his way back from england he was on a boat got a telegram to say that your first daughter's just been born mother and baby <laughs> both well and it was two weeks before he got to see her really so he actually Funnily enough, he got invited uh, on a tour of, I think it was New Zealand, for hockey, and he had to decline it because it was the one weekend off between the hockey season and the cricket season, and he decided to get married that weekend. So <laughs> it's the one weekend he had to get married. Lack of commitment to <laughs> hockey, is that it? Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> I see. His hockey career, I mean, he represented Australia, but that was the first time hockey was played in the Olympics? Yes, they, they hadn't played before. The, the team was actually known as the Originals, and there was a speech made by... Uh, someone before the Olympics proceeded and they said, you, you, you may lose every game, you may win every game, but you'll always be known as the original regardless <laughs> yeah. of, of the result. Uh, right. But did hockey interfere with his cricket or cricket interfere with his hockey at that kind of amateur professional level? It did to an extent. So thankfully in some ways they were different seasons. So the winter would be the hockey, the summer would be the cricket. Um, but there was some discussion around his selection for the Olympic side, particularly because the Olympics being an amateur. Uh, mm. you know, it was fiercely amateur then, no, wasn't it? Indeed. Yes. So not like today where mm. you know, Roger Federer could play in the tennis and mm. it's all good. But So there was some discussion because he got paid you know, a pound or two for playing in the Sheffield Shield cricket. There was some concern whether that counted him as a professional or how all that came together. But ultimately he was able to play. He, played a, he didn't play every game at the Olympics, but mm. uh, played a couple of, of matches. Now, he was a school teacher by profession, though. He was, so what was he teaching in school? Physical education. Right. Well, that fits in. So it does it? fit in well. Yeah, it did fit in well. <laughs> but now there's a funny story about his first Sheffield... Well, it wasn't a Sheffield Shield game. His first first grade cricket, first class cricket game. Yes, his New South Wales debut. His New South Wales debut. So tell me that story because I love it. It's a great story, this one. So he, he was teaching at Helston Agricultural High School, which nowadays there's plenty of buildings around, but it was almost deemed a rural placement Back in the, the Which 1950s. Which suburbs? Uh, Glenfield. Glenfield. That's so a long way out from Sydney. For our overseas visitors, Sydney's a very spread out city, isn't it? Uh, yes, oh, absolutely. That's quite a trip. Yes. He got a call into the headmaster's office one day and uh, said, Brian, we've got a, a call for you. And you know, he picked up the phone, hello, and 
that I think it was Arthur Morris and Vic Christophany were unavailable to play today for New South Wales. Can you make it in this morning? He looks up at his headmaster and says, sorry, can you repeat that? They repeat it and said, we, we need you to come in. You know, is, it, is that okay? So he obviously asks the headmaster. The headmaster says, well, yes, of course, go on. So he gets, leaves the school, gets on a train, 70 minutes the train took from Helson Agricultural into Central. And then he found a taxi once he got to the train station, which he said took almost as long as the train, if not longer, at least it felt like that. It felt like it, no yeah. doubt. So New South Wales were playing the MCC, which is essentially the English cricket team back mm-hmm. then. They were touring Australia. By the time he arrived at the cricket ground, he got to the gate. He said, Brian Booth, I'm playing in the match today. The groundsman said, oh, yes, I've been expecting you. Head on in. Looked up at the scoreboard. New South Wales is already three for 12. So, you know, hurry on, get padded so up. So the game had already started. The game had well, commenced. Really. Yeah, it was... And we were already losing we were, yeah. series. Three for 12, for those who don't follow cricket, is a disastrous a score. Terrible start, <laughs> terrible start. And then by the time he was padded up, they'd lost a further two wickets. So New South Wales was about five for 26. By the time he actually made it to the crease, and the grand announcer says, uh, you know, Booth to bat, which ended up being the name of his autobiography, which he used. Yes. He went in quite... Hurriedly, unexpectedly, and he, he ended up top scoring. Uh, he scored about 70, 76, it might have been, 70 or 80, roughly around there. And that was his first match for New South Wales. And How old he, would he have been then, do you reckon? Well, he would have been 22, I think. It was 19, in the mid-1950s. Right. Uh, fresh out of university as a high school teacher. Did he come from Sydney? So did he grow up in Sydney? or was he? Uh, where, tell us about his early life. No, he grew up in Perthville. Do, do either of you know where Perthville is? Just outside Bathurst, yeah, of course. Just outside of Bathurst, a small town. <laughs> when he grew up there, there was less than 150 people in, in Perthville. Uh, and even today, it's probably not too many more than that. His, he was born in 1933, October 19th. And even the local primary school, there were 27 kids in the whole school. And in, in his year group, there were three. Uh, so That's the kind of school town. I went to. There were 28 kids in the school I went to. Is that right? <laughs> so when you come from the country, um, and it wasn't as far back as, <laughs> as that, it wasn't in the Depression. Uh, but yeah, country schools are like that. Mm. That's so, it. Yeah. Was the Depression hard for the family? Was it uh, well, it, it's, his dad was a farmer, a cauliflower farmer, actually, and from all reports, a pretty good one. Um, only so many cauliflowers you can eat, though. Well, yes, there's a, lot of, <laughs> a fair few meals of cauliflower, I'd imagine. But uh, I think it hit him a little hard, but no more than anywhere else. They still right. made made a living and got by okay. They certainly weren't uh, rich by any means of the, the word. But. A sports-made family? Yeah, so his father, his, his nickname was Snowy Booth. When I was talking to my grandfather earlier this year, he said it was because he went bald pretty early. <laughs> he played cricket in the local competitions and uh, was fairly well known throughout the district. When Grandpa, his, his first game of cricket was with his father in the local men's comp in the afternoon because they didn't obviously have a juniors comp or anything like that. Uh, so he got to bat at number 11 and his dad at number 10 and so he cherished that <laughs> partnership there and I think he outscored his dad. <laughs> <laughs> you cherished match, it so. even more, yes. <laughs> but then he, he played for, I think he made his way across to Bathurst and tried out for the local school team and he was having a bit of a bat and the he was the headmaster asked him what his name was he said oh booth sir he said oh you you snowy booth son he said yes i am he said, oh, never mind you're in the team didn't yeah. even have to worry about that's good <laughs> it was more than just cricket sure i mean it must be hockey as well yeah well but hockey was other games a bit of tennis actually so mm-hmm. the, his father was very good at he actually sacrificed a little cauliflower bed in the house 
in the backyard so we could actually form out a cricket pitch and some other gravel areas for a bit of a tennis court and actively encouraged all the sport growing up and grandpa and his dad would play some tennis matches in the backyard and uh, I think he said one day he was getting pretty close to his dad and said all right dad five sets winner takes all gets the ultimate you know crowned as best tennis player the the first set it was 28 all (laughs) (laughs) so they they were a bit exhausted by the end of the match so they weren't weren't at all a competitive family is what you're saying no It's interesting you talk about cricket and tennis uh, and some hockey, but growing up in the country, they were still, they were still the sports that mm. country people played where I grew up. It was, it was cricket in summer, tennis in winter. You go around and play little tennis matches in all the little local hamlets yes, against yeah. other people. And it's the way you're talking about his sporting background brings back some memories. Um, but was he, a, was he a Christian at that time, do you think? His parents would take him to church and he was encouraged to go to church uh, as a young man, but it wasn't until he actually moved to Sydney where he fully committed his, his life to Christ. How did that happen? What's his Christian story? So, uh, as with a lot of things in his life, it, it involved cricket. Uh, so he'd moved from Bathurst into Sydney on a, a scholarship with the Teachers College uh, back in the, in the late 40s, early 50s, uh, and he moved into an area which would now be Hurstville, so where he played a lot of his cricket. He was boarding with a family uh, known as the Brown family. And the mother suggested that he go visit a, a person by the name of Warren Saunders mm-hmm. and go That's play. a great name. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes uh, sadly passed away in mm-hmm. March this year. Uh, and so we met him, got introduced, went down to the cricket ground, Hurstville Oval. They tried him out, put him straight in first grade. Uh, and it, he was playing a game of first grade one day and he'd got, he'd got into bat, he'd got out and uh, this gentleman had walked across the change room to have a bit of a chat with him and giving him a bit of advice, a bit of technical advice. He said, you know, you just got out leg before wicket if you did these things and, you know, might help a bit. And then the man left and Grandpa, he was speaking to Ernie Laidlow, who was first grade keeper for about 30 years. And he said, oh, was, was that old fella, you know, was he much of a cricketer at all? You know, could have just been some, you know, one of the many old blokes offering their opinion. And uh, Old fellas do offer opinions. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and then... No comment. No. <laughs> so Ernie then said, that, that's Roy Gray. You know, he's a fantastic cricketer in his own right. He played in the day of Arthur Morris, Bill O'Reilly, a few of those gentlemen. Uh, he said he probably could have played cricket for Australia. I don't know why he ended up going into the ministry and throwing it all away. <laughs> and so Grandpa, admittedly, he walked around Hurstville and although his parents had encouraged him to go to church, he'd sort of just sort of done his own thing. It wasn't his own interest he still believed in god but nothing too personally and saw a notice board outside the church in hurstville decided he'd go to one of the church services of a sunday evening so most of his weekends were pretty full with sport but he found some time and over a series of weeks he'd catch up with roy gray they'd talk to him um and in roy, was actually, roy gray was the minister there at hurstville he was he, he was yeah, yeah. so George was there, yeah. former first grader he'd um I think the Canon Roy Gray was mm. his official title, um, and he'd invite Grandpa over for dinner. And over a series of weeks, they'd just talk about you know a whole range of topics, sport, life, all those different things. And one night, he just point blank asked the question. He said, Brian, do you know the Lord Jesus at a personal level? And he was completely taken aback by it because no one had really asked him at a personal level. He said, oh, yeah, I believe in God. And But to actually make it such a personal thing was was quite unique. And Roy actually used John 3.16 to sort of help get the point across and in yeah, How did he do that? So he said, For God so loved Brian Booth that he gave his one and only son so that Brian Booth 
believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And he was just so struck by the fact that, you know, it was Jesus dying for him. It wasn't, you know, random other people. He thought initially it was just one of those, well, the classic Aussie really. Mm. He'll get into heaven because he does all right. You know, he's not a terrible person. But he's a good bloke. Yeah, you know, the, the classic well, God Aussie. needs him for his 11 up in heaven. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, making it so personal was was quite a big thing for Grandpa. And I think Roy also used Romans three twenty two to 23, so for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which kind of did away with that oh, I'm good enough attitude. And that was the night he committed his life to Christ. And 70 years after that, he I think he did a pretty good job. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What were the initial consequences of him committing his life to, to Jesus in terms of his his life, his ministry, his involvements? Did it interfere with his cricket? Did it change the way he lived? What I mean, obviously you weren't there then, but from mm. the stories you've heard told, what difference did it make to him? He, he certainly had a greater focus on uh, sportsmanship. I think a lot of the articles that came out after his passing referred to that sort of I viewed sport as my god uh, before he'd converted because he was just so enamoured with all different sports, whether it's cricket, hockey, tennis, all those things. And there's a few stories he'd often tell about, you know, man catting being quite popular to use a cricket term, but he'd once run out someone at the opposition end and his father immediately told him not to, but other times, you know, he'd get an, an edge and the keeper would catch it and he wouldn't walk, all those sorts of things. But he'd always felt guilty about it, particularly after these things became more apparent and... Um, and he's, he's, he became known as quite a good sportsman. He'd play by the not just the rules of the game but the spirit of the game as well and it, it changed his life a little bit but initially not too much. But as it went on he became sort of everyone knew he was a Christian after a little while. We'll talk about some of the stories that have come out there. There's some lovely quotes in the mm. articles about your granddad. But I'm interested in terms of his involvement, so in terms of ministry or that kind of stuff, what sort of things did he get involved in as a young Christian man? Were there things that he was doing, his church involvements and so on? Yes, well, so even when he was teaching at Helson Agricultural High School, he did start up a, a Bible study because it's a boarding high school. So back then they'd have mm. kids from the country and other places that'd stay on site, uh, finish their schooling, have dinner, all those sorts of things. And he initially asked the headmaster if he was happy for him to start this new sort of Bible study up. He started with, I think, two or three boys that, that came along and they said, oh, we'll do it after dinner so as not to disturb everyone from their activities and those sorts of things. And eventually it grew so large they had to move it before dinner because it was disturbing all the people trying to go to sleep <laughs> after dinner. Uh, but then many of those boys, he, he took them to the Billy Graham crusade in 1959 and, and many of the boys committed their lives to Christ for the first time there and many of them ended up going into ministry as well. And he was quite involved in the Billy Graham crusade, in particularly 59 and then the 68-69 crusades. Um, he would be one of the people that had helped those that committed their lives to Christ and be one of the mentors and chat with them, pray for them and help them out there. Um, he actually met Billy Graham as well, I think, in one of the mm-hmm. tours. Uh, uh, and then even at, at church he had a bit of an involvement where he could, uh, particularly the Sunday school programs, he got quite involved, so... Uh, my nan, Judy, his wife, um, was a primary school teacher, uh, so they wrangled, I think at one point it was about 400 primary school age kids for the Sunday school every Sunday morning, so it was a, a pretty big effort there. Uh, and then the last well, probably 40, 50 years of his life, he was at Norway Baptist Church for a while, it was about a two-minute walk from their house. But across his career, he was asked to help out with different speaking engagements and he was often characterised as a lay preacher, but he didn't really go into ministry or do the formal training. But 
often different speaking engagements would come up. He'd speak from his experience as a test cricketer, but also as a Christian and how those worlds intersect a bit. Um, even in Adelaide before a Shield game, he was invited to deliver the sermon there in, in England in 61 and 64. He delivered the message at a couple of churches. Uh, was, West Indies did the same. Yes, he? West Indies mm. and uh, even with Wes Hall and a few mm. other uh, mm. well-known Christians there. There's a, there's a great picture of him at Port of Spain behind the lectern sort of delivering the, the message there as well. Mm. Was Wes Hall a Christian as well? Yes, Wes Hall. Very... He was my hero as a well, young, he, as a he young... became a full-time minister. Did he really? Yeah. I'll give you that, that story. He's even time. more. He's even more of my hero now. <laughs> yeah, I used yeah. to watch him bowl as a young as a young keen cricketer uh, in my well, but you know, even before my teens, watching mm. him and thinking, "Wow, to be able to bowl like that." Because the the fastest bowler, Grandpa mm. reckoned he faced mm. a spell from Wes Hall and Charlie Griffiths in in the West Indies. In one of the matches, he scored a century, and he considered it the best century he'd ever scored. Because even when I was a little boy, he told me this story of he'd face up to these big, fast West Indian bowlers and. He looked up one time, the ball had been released and he tried to play the shot and the ball was already in the wicketkeeper's hands. <laughs> Felt a, a whiz past his nose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I saw Wes Hall at the cricket game one day and I told my daughter that he was a Christian. The next thing I knew, she was sitting out there talking to him. And he sent a little note back to me saying, <laughs> yeah, he's a very good Christian. Conrad Hunt was another one who's a yes, Christian. Yes, Conrad. There was, yeah. But in Australian cricket, we haven't had many Christians really up front like that, have we? No, not not many at all. Uh, and it was, I think there was one article in the English press that they'd asked him if if he felt God was on his side, and he said, "Well, yes." And the, the big heading the next day was, yes. "England can't win. God is on Brian Booth's side." <laughs> yes, typical journalism. Yes, <laughs> yes. There was a lovely paragraph about in that sort of line at the end of Gideon Haig's uh, mm. wonderful article about your grandfather. Oh, fantastic! If you, if you enjoy reading Gideon Haig's cricket journalism, uh, look up this article on the Australian website where he once asked your grandfather whether he prayed for help for God's help. Um, <laughs> And uh, and your grandfather said, oh, yes. But there was this day, it was in the West Indies, he was facing <laughs> Charlie Griffith, who was a fearsome bowler, and he thought of Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so how did it go? And your granddad said, he bowled me, he yorked me all over the place. I didn't even see it, he said. So uh, he had a good sense of humour as well. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Even, yeah, he was obviously a lot of focus on his sporting and and faith aspects, but very funny man, very witty. Uh, but come back to this sportsmanship element, because yes, he was a great cricketer and and a dual international sportsman, which is you know extraordinary. But he really was known as the most sporting, most upright of crickets, because cr- cricket's a game in which of recent times we've seen very easy to cheat. Oh, <laughs> and the Australians have got a very bad reputation mm. of recent times, not only for cheating, but being unpleasant in the way in which they play the game. Yes. Uh, called sledging is the kind of language. But your grandfather was nothing like that. It was almost the opposite, wasn't he? Oh, indeed. He'd actually written an article in Wisden Australia in the early 2000s, I think it was titled The Curse of Sledging, which was quite critical of particularly Steve Waugh's side and uh, the, the approach in which they took their cricket and there was a, about a 20-page article in there. But uh, Even during his own time, he was known for walking, so 
Can you explain what walking is for all our many listeners who might not understand? So walking, uh, particularly if you hit the ball and they get caught, the umpire gives it not out because they didn't think the batsman had hit it or so... Most batsmen would think, oh, what a, what a wonderful reprieve. I'll continue my innings. But Grandpa, being honest enough, said knew he'd hit it. He, he was out, so he just walked off the field regardless of what the umpire had said, the decision he'd made or anything like that. And that's, that's quite rare for, for cricketers to do. It certainly is these days. It was more common in the past as being mm. the gentlemanly thing to do, that you knew you were out, and if you knew you were out, you walked off, even if the umpire hadn't spotted it. And some modern cricketers have done it. Adam Gilchrist used yes. to do it from time to time. Um, and was criticised for it in this day of professionalism and, and, mm. and win at all costs. Um, but your dad was certainly one of those people who... Uh, sorry, your, your grandfather was certainly yeah. one of those people who, who walked and was known for it. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, even going further back, you got W.G. Grace, who was almost the opposite. He'd, he'd get bold. to get out. <laughs> the bales would go off, he'd pick it back on and say, oh, it's a very windy day today. <laughs> They've come to see me play. That's right. Riding, so. <laughs> but people have come to see me play. I'm not going out. Yeah. Famously, on one occasion, he was only two runs off his century and he walked. But today, of course, we've got high-tech sound system to try and catch out whether there's been a touch of the of the ball or the bat. Yes, the decision review system and, and all those things. That didn't exist back in those days, so it was a matter of the honesty of the batsman, wasn't it? Oh, indeed, and uh, there was certainly many willing to take advantage of the reprieves they were given, and uh, there was a few occasions yeah, where Grandpa would just... You know, he knew he was out. There was one occasion in the West Indies where uh, he was given out by the umpire and he'd walked off the field, was in the change room and the West Indians actually figured out the ball had bounced before it got to the fielder and the, the captain refused to continue the match before he came back out on the field as well. So perhaps that sportsmanship had rubbed off a bit on yeah. some of the other players. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How did he cope with the issue of Sunday sport? Well, that's in many ways what end, uh, led to the end of his uh, career at the higher levels. Initially... For, for many years, really, they had a rest day for test matches and Sheffield Shield matches where even if a match started on a Friday, they'd play Friday, Saturday, rest day. Saw himself as you know, training, playing, sport was seven days a week and to not have you know a rest day, he felt that if he was a Christian that he, he needed to take a rest day for himself, which obviously if they're now playing on Sundays, you can't excuse yourself for a day of the match and just come back for the next day or two, so... Particularly the late 60s, he played uh, one match, I think 1968-69, in the Sheffield Shield for New South Wales in South Australia because South Australia was the only state that still had the rest day. So it was the one match he played. And then after that, he just retired from the state level of cricket and he hadn't been selected for the national side since uh, 1965-66, but carried on playing in the, the grade competition. And even they had a knockout competition on the Sundays, which he, he stayed out of, he only played on the Saturdays. Hmm. The interesting thing, too, about his Christian witness, as it were, his character, his sportsmanship, is that it was very noticeable. Everyone commented on it. Hmm. Um, Kerry O'Keefe, in his biography, commented very glowingly about Brian as a Baptist and as someone who was a moral and decent person, but who didn't shove it down your throat, who, hmm. who was transparent and open, but admirable in the way that, in the gentle way that he witnessed. Hmm. Gideon Haig in this article that I referenced earlier says he may have been the most straightforwardly decent and self-effacing cricketer to hold the country's highest cricket office. What's your impression from what you know of him of how he managed to do that? That is to be a Christian, an open and straightforward Christian in his attitudes, but in a way that others really admired 
and saw as straightforwardly decent and honest. Mm. Well, he, he he wasn't a Pharisee. He, he wasn't you know setting down the the legal law and expecting everyone to to come under that banner, particularly perhaps with his own background and playing a fair bit of professional sport. You come across many different characters in in many uses of the word. Uh, but even in the change room, it often just you know let let the gentlemen do what they wanted to do, say the things they wanted to do, and um, he wouldn't actively involve himself, but he he also wouldn't berate them for their beliefs as well. There was a few occasions where certain cricketers would you know if, if their attitudes weren't particularly well, they'd have a, a quiet word to them one on one rather than make a big scene out of it in the change room in front of the whole team as well, which they particularly appreciated too. Um, and he wasn't a heavy drinker. Wasn't a heavy drinker, wasn't a gambler or any of those th- sorts of things. Uh, mm. There was a one of the New South Wales side that a, a Melbourne Cup sweepstakes mm-hmm. and rather than make Grandpa put some money in, he made him in charge of the money, the captain. <laughs> so it sort of <laughs> they solved, trust the, him solved the, the issue pot. there. Yeah, yes. okay. yeah. <laughs> and how did you know him as a grandfather? So as a, as a family man in terms of his personal life, what do you remember of him and, and what struck you as a as a Christian grandson of a Christian grandfather? Well, growing up, it was it's kind of every kid's dream. We've got a grandfather who played test cricket for Australia and captain, <laughs> yeah. so it was always a, a sense of pride there. It was interesting because particularly in cricketing circles, I'd be introduced, oh, this is Nathan Brian Booth's grandson, so there's always that sort of second element to it, which mm. I was always happy to be known as Brian Booth's grandson. Very, very gentle, calm loving as a grandfather. Thankfully, I lived about a 15-minute drive away from my grandparents on both sides, uh, so we got to see plenty of them growing up and seeing them on weekends quite often. So in, in many of those ways, there were just a lot of those things brought up in us throughout our lives, and particularly as I became you know, a teenager into adulthood, we started thinking about Christianity and things a bit more seriously, and he, he never pushed or anything like that, but, but always encouraged us in our own faith and journeys and, and all of those things and I think the older I got the more I appreciated who he was as a Christian and, and how he went about his faith as well uh, which was always something quite special but we'd have many family lunches occasions all those sorts of things where it was just it was enjoyable to spend time with him and not even because he was a, a test cricketer or an Olympian it was just because my grandfather was a loving man and had a very good sense of humour <laughs> right till the end uh, you met with him in the end while he was in hospital? I did, yeah. It was quite a lot. He was in hospital for about six weeks. So just prior to Easter, for the following six weeks after that, uh, almost every day or every second day I was visiting on, on some occasions. So it's um, certainly time I hold quite dear to me. Uh, and he, he actually had a Bible. I, I wandered in to see him one evening and noticed he had a Bible next to his bed there and just flicked it open and inscribed in the front of it, it was from 1964, from Howard Guinness, who had founded the EU, the Evangelical Union at Sydney Uni, who I spent a bit of time with, so I was immediately like, is this the Howard Guinness? And I was asking him about that. It was given to him as a gift uh, from Howard Guinness and his church ahead of his 1964 tour. And it was just meticulously noted, highlighted almost every page. I, was, I think it was a Phillips... New Testament edition of, of the Bible. Oh, the J.B. Phillips Yes, yes, that's the one. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one evening that I just sort of sat down with him, flicked open a few pages, and we were just sort of reading through different bits and pieces of what he'd highlighted, underlined, and I pretty much had a two-hour Bible study with my grandfather that night, which was uh, incredibly special. It's, uh, Absolutely. Hmm. And it's wonderful, isn't it, to hear that the public Christian hmm. was such a private Christian? 
Oh, indeed. Because <laughs> there was just authenticity about him, wasn't there? There was genuine reality in this man. Yes, whether it was the public Brian Booth at a, a cricket function or Grandpa sitting down for lunch, it was it was the same the same man. Yeah, it was very consistent. It's always a great problem for us when there are big personalities, big famous people in arts or sports or anything like that, getting them to give the testimonies to life as to how real it is Hmm. and what happens if actually we find out they're living a double life. Brian was never like that. He, he never was the great testimony necessarily. He just was what he was Hmm. and people knew. And he was that privately, wasn't he? Oh, certainly. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. And it was part of the effectiveness then of his ministry. Yes. It wasn't that he sought fame or sought to be the big Christian celebrity in any sense, but because he was well-known and he was a genuine Christian, whenever he spoke, he spoke with integrity and reality, and people loved to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was one of the reasons he didn't actually go into ministry. Uh, he'd written a book with Paul White, the, the Jungle Doctor. Was uh, that series. Booth the Bat? Or Booth was the it? Bat, yeah, the autobiography. Yeah. Yeah. He also wrote uh, Cricket and Christianity. So in, initially when they were making the autobiography, it was just after he'd finished his playing days. Um, and he, he wanted to write a book that got across elements of his faith and wanted to have a few lessons in there. And Paul White said to him, well, let's, let's put that to the side. Did the autobiography first. A year or two later did Cricket and Christianity where it sort of interspersed some of his stories from his cricketing career but also a, a Christian lesson attributed to that and even a few Bible passages in there to get people not just reading and having a bit of a Christian message but looking at the Word of God to get these lessons out. Um, and many people had approached him about perhaps going into ministry. Grandpa at one point even considered going into mission. Well, but I think it was Paul White amongst a few others encouraged him that he could have a, a greater effect considering he was a public Christian, doing bits and pieces all over the place rather than just being in a parish here or a place over there, just to use his witness all over the country and even internationally on occasions as well. But he still was an educator, teacher. I mean, lectured, Mm. left Mm. teaching and went into lecturing of some kind, didn't he? Yes, yes, he was at the Sydney Teachers College, which changed names about two or three times and is now the education department, but he was there until the 90s, I believe. Because we're cricket tragics, etc., we're talking cricket, but he also wrote a book on hockey. He did, Hockey Fundamentals, and it was basically just a a guidebook for how to play hockey and bits to do with sportsmanship, but even he as a coach imparting some of his wisdom as well, because even after his playing days, he coached for many, many years in, in both sports and was actively involved still with the St George Cricket Club until probably March this year at the end of the season and the hockey club actually has a best and fairest medal named after him for the entire Sydney competition. Right. And I only heard this story at the wake. It was the first time I'd heard this, that they introduced the Brian Booth medal while he was still playing. And <laughs> he was actually in the lead and was going to win the Brian, the Brian Booth medal. <laughs> and he, he removed himself from the counting, so that he didn't think it was right that he would win his own medal. And it just speaks volumes of who he is, because there'd be plenty of people happy to win their own medal and say, well, that's why it's named after me. But that wasn't the point with him. It was, you know, it's not all about Ryan Booth. And and he is the man to make medal after on best and fairest. Certainly. And down there's a... um, it's Hurstville, isn't it? Where there's Hurstville a stand Oval. named after him and his friend Warren Saunders, isn't it? Yes, the Booth Saunders Pavilion. So I did uh, refer to Warren Saunders earlier. They, after that initial meeting, shared a friendship for 70 years. 
and they'd played about 20 years of first grade cricket together. Warren also played for New South Wales. Uh, they were both president for about 10 years each and they were co-patrons for the last 30 or so years. Uh, their passing within a couple of months of each other was, was somewhat fitting in, in mm. some ways for the club and Warren had a faith of his own uh, mm-hmm. as well, more of a Catholic background. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, So there's a stand named after them. Nathan, thanks so much for coming in and talking with us about your granddad. It's a great example of someone who was who became a public Christian. He didn't seek to become one, but just because he was an extraordinary man with extraordinary talents and gifts, became a prominent public person in Australia, a household name in Australia, mm-hmm. a hero in Australia in many respects in his time. And yet in all of that was calmly, self-effacingly, clearly... Um, and unashamedly a Christian in his witness, in his behaviour, in his character, in the way he played the game and the way he carried himself and how he spoke to his teammates and in how he witnessed for Christ in the middle of all of it. Uh, and he's a great one for us to know about, part of our history that it's good for us to know and to emulate as one of those great cloud of witnesses who, who cheer us on, as he now does, cheer us on from the sidelines or from that great grandstand in the sky. Look at the outcome of their faith. And imitate. Exactly. That's what Hebrews, Hebrews is saying, isn't it? It is, which is what we should do. Mm. Philip, how about you pray for us as we round off um, that we would do that to give thanks mm-hmm. for Brian and for all that God has done through him and that we would imitate his example. And thanks, for Nathan, for coming in, sharing with us all. Pleasure. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for all good things that you give to us, but we thank you for this man and for his great faith. We thank you that you called him to yourself. We thank you for Roy Gray and his sharing the gospel, sharing that John 3.16, that God so loved Brian Booth as to give his only son, that Brian Booth will not perish but have eternal life. We thank you that he grasped hold of that eternal life that you have won for us. And we thank you that that so marked him out within his close community that he lived with in these cricket tours and uh, hockey teams that he would be known for his faith in the Lord Jesus and so would constantly bring testimony to him. And we thank you that what he was in public, he was in private, and especially within his own family, that he bore such testimony and that Nathan had such opportunity to spend time with him in his last days studying your word. We do thank you, Father, for all the things we've heard this day and praise you for our friend and our grandfather in Brian Booth, and we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.